0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance podcast on money, investing, the economy, and why they matter. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 22. It's titled, Will Interest Rates Ever Increase? And if so, what should you do about it? The suggestion for today's podcast came from Paul, who noted that financial pundits had been predicting interest rates would increase this year and for several years, and in fact, they haven't. And he said he wasn't a trader, but just wanted to make sure that his portfolio was positioned for when rates would eventually rise, but was there a way to have made money even though they hadn't? So today, we're going to learn about what interest rates are, what drives them, what influences them, and what we can do in terms of investing in fixed income and what we can do in terms of investing during a period when rates are rising. Now, I do a lot of fixed income or bond investing. And if you listen to episode 21 and you've seen my portfolio allocation over time, I typically have a significant percentage of my portfolio. In fixed income and just as a reminder fixed income or bond investing when you buy a bond the company or the government that issued the bond has essentially borrowed money from you and so they take your money and in return they pay interest on a periodic basis and then at the end of the term they'll pay back principal so at a basic level that's what bonds are. Now, if you listen to episode 9, what investment rate of return should you expect, you learn that the value of a bond will vary depending on what interest rates do. So, as interest rates go up, the value of a bond will decline, or if interest rates fall, the value of the bond will go up. In that episode, we learned that the best estimate for the future return for a fixed income fund a bond fund or a bond exchange trader fund, an ETF, is what is it currently yielding? It's yield to maturity. And you can go back and listen to episode nine. You can learn more about that. I won't get into the detail. But the one thing I want to point out that I didn't point out there was this concept called duration. And duration measures the interest rate sensitivity of a bond or a bond fund or ETF. And now what do I mean by that? Well, by interest rate sensitivity, it measures given a certain percent increase in interest rates, what will be the reaction of the bond fund? So if a bond fund has a duration of four, if interest rates go up one percent, an approximation is the value of that bond fund will fall four percentage points. If the duration was 10, if interest rates increase by 1%, the value of the bond fund would fall 10%. If interest rates fell by 1%, the value of the bond fund would increase by 10%. Duration is really calculated based on the cash flow of the bond. So a longer-term bond would have a higher duration, and they calculate it based on the timing of the interest payments over time, and the timing of the eventual principal payment and and you don't need to know exactly how to calculate duration it's essentially it's a discounted type cash flow math problem that you can look it up in a finance book if you really want to know how to calculate it what we really care about is the rule of thumb and it's again it's just an approximation but it, it what this year for example just to kind of give you an idea if you invested Had you invested in a long-term treasury index or a long-term treasury bond fund, that fund has returned over 17% this year because long-term bonds, the 30-year treasury bond, has gone from a yield of about 4% at the beginning of 2014 down to around 3.2% today, so about a 0.8% decline. And so you got a 17% increase because the typical duration of a long-term treasury fund is about 20. Now, most typical bond funds that you invest in don't have anywhere close to a 20-year duration. Most are sort of in that kind of 2 to 4-year duration range. And so if rates increase 1%, in the short term, they might fall 2 to 4%. Now that's unpleasant, but not catastrophic. And that's one reason I invest in fixed income. One, because I can get a higher income component, a yield, and that yield is typically, if it's a diversified bond fund, it's higher than the dividend yield in holding stocks. And stocks, as we learned last episode, and well in both episode 20 and 21, they can fall 30 to 40 percent in a matter of weeks. During an extreme event, interest rates are not going to fall 20% in a matter of weeks unless you happen to hold a bond fund with a, with a very, very long duration or interest rate sensitivity. And so I like to invest in fixed income because I can get a higher yield. And even as rates could change, they don't change that fast. And one, re- one of the things we're going to focus on today is, well, why don't rates change that quickly. What is it that influences interest rates? And so it's sort of like investing in slow motion. Yeah, the the value of the bonds will change over time. Interest rates will adjust, but you're not going to get that huge movement in terms of a loss like you can get for stocks. So it's a great way to preserve capital over time. If you looked at how I invested over the from 2008 through today, I've generally had some exposure to interest into bonds to fixed income i'm just I'm much more comfortable doing it because much of fixed income investing is it's based on math. It's not necessarily based on prediction. So let's look at what influences interest rates. First, interest rates are global in the sense that capital is going from place to place. You know, as we've talked about in earlier episodes, that money is digits. It can be shifted from different places electronically. And because of that, interest rates are global in nature in that countries essentially compete for capital based on what interest rates are. And and just as an example, in the U.S. right now, U.S. Treasury bonds yield 2.5 percent. Now as an investor as a U.S. investor, I can invest and earn a yield of 2.5 percent. Or I could take that same investment and convert it to yen and go and buy a Japanese bond. The 10-year yield on Japanese bonds is 0.54 percent. So the U.S. is yielding almost two percent more. Or I could go to Germany, where the 10-year Treasury bond, the German bond, is yielding just under 1%. I could take more risk and invest in Spanish or Italian bonds. Spanish Spanish bonds, the 10-year, is yielding 2.04%. Italian bonds are earning 2.2%. So we're in an environment where the U.S. Treasury bonds, the 10-year is yielding more than bonds around the world. Now, I would argue that the US Treasury bond is actually has less risk than investing in an Italian or a Spanish bond. Why is that? Well, the US controls its own currency, it has a currency monopoly, it issues its debt in the, do- in the dollar. And the government doesn't have to wait for dollars to show up before it spends. If you have a monopoly on your currency, if you're using a fiat currency, it's not backed by anything, you can pay interest on bonds. You can pay back the principal without collecting more taxes because you just change the digits. You can create money out of thin air. In Italy or Spain, they're effectively using a foreign currency, and their currency is the euro. They do not control their printing press. They actually have to go raise the money through taxes or through rolling over their debt in order to pay back the, those bonds. That's a very different situation. Yet, the yield on Spanish and Italian bonds are lower than US Treasuries. And, and, and what's interesting is all right, well, if I go out and invest in a Spanish bond, yeah, I'm taking more risk, I'm getting a lower yield, but I'm also incurring the currency risk because the value of the exchange rate between the dollar and the euro is always fluctuating. And those currency exchange rates are also very much influenced by what's going on with interest rates. For example, recently, the European Central Bank announced that they had further reduced interest rates on the short-term, key interest rates, and that they potentially would get involved in some form of quantitative easing. They were going to go out into the market and start buying what are called asset-backed securities or or loans backed by mortgages and other asset types. And European Central Bank, Mario Draghi, didn't give a, a lot of details yet on what that means. But ultimately, his announcement, the, the cutting of short-term rates again and this announcement of a potential quantitative easing, actually put downward pressure on interest rates in Europe. And at the same time, what that caused is the exchange rate between the euro and the dollar actually adjusted. In other words, the euro began to weaken because there was less demand for the euro by foreign investors because they didn't want to hold bonds where potentially the rates weren't as competitive as they were in the U.S. And so you ha- you have all this capital moving back and forth, currency exchange rates adjusting based on what interest rates are. The bottom line is though, if you're a financial pundit predicting the interest rates in the U.S. are going to increase at the same time you potentially have a slowing economy, or at least an economy in Europe that's just not increasing, it's a global market for interest rates. And so the U.S. already has some of the highest interest rates in the world. And so there isn't necessarily the pressure for them to go even higher because they're competing with Japan, Germany, and all other countries that have lower rates. That's one thing to remember with interest rates. The second is central banks are ground zero for influencing what interest rates are. The Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, and other central banks around the globe. How do they influence interest rates? Well, one, they have direct control over short-term rates. And in it could in the US that that short-term rate is called the Fed funds rate. It's a target. It's a rate that banks can borrow from each other. But the the all interest rate interest or all interest rate instruments, really all asset classes, are priced off of short term rates. And so, right now, rates in the U.S. a short term rate is is very very low. It's it's I believe about point two five percent, and also very low in Europe. And so, that's an anchor to to longer-term rates. That's where it all starts. So all assets look at. All right, here's what short-term rates are, and then they, the markets start to to anticipate. Okay, here's what they are today. What will short-term rates be a year from now or two years from now? And that's why there's so many central bank watchers, and they try to parse central bank statements of the, of the chairman or the chairperson to figure out. All right where will the federal reserve and other central banks set interest rates a year from now and two years from now and and the consensus is if the us economy continues to expand that the federal reserve will start increasing short term rates beginning in june 2015 we don't know but that's sort of the consensus but there's all this all this sort of trying analysis and and, and it's And they're often wrong, those that are trying to foresee these things, because it very much depends on what the economy is doing a year from now. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. Comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. The thing to remember, though, is longer-term rates are anchored by short-term rates. And why is that? Because a longer-term bond is really made up of a series of short-term bonds. If I go out and buy a one-year bond, I could do that and hold it for one year, or I could buy a series of bonds that mature in 30 days and roll them over. Same ways I could go out and buy a 10-year treasury bond. Or I could buy a series of one-year bonds and as it matures, I could go out and buy another one. And so the interest rates on a 10-year bond, part of what makes up the interest rate is influenced what the one-year bond rate is. And the yield on the one-year bond is influenced by what the 30-day yield is, since it's made up of 12 30-day bonds. And the 30-day year yield is very much influenced by what the Fed funds or the short-term target rate or the daily rate is. And so there's this connection between the short-term daily rates to the monthly rates to the yearly rates to the rates over 10 years. Go back to the 10-year treasury bond. You can think of it as two five-year bonds, the yield. So the 10-year yield would be influenced by what five-year yields are today and what the projection will be for five-year bonds five years from now. And that's kind of interesting. You can cut and slice interest rates into different components. That five-year expected yield on bonds, five-year bond, that's called forward expectations. And so what do investors believe the five-year bond will yield five years from now? And that's why you have this whole connection of interest rates. So that's why the central banks very much can influence longer term rates because longer term rates are made up of a series of short term rates and central banks control what that short term rate is. The other influence on interest rates are you have to understand what are the components of an interest rate. So let's go back to a 10 year government bond. It's really made up of two components. It's made up of what's called the real rate of interest, and it's made up of an inflation expectation. And there are these things called Treasury Inflation Protection Securities. And in the U.S., that's TIPS for short. And Treasury Inflation Protection Securities have no type of inflation expectation in them because the way these bonds work is the government that issues them will... Mark up the value of the bond, or pay you additional interest based on what inflation is. So the the rate on those government bonds is the pure real rate of interest. And so what what you can do is you can say, all right, here's a ten year treasury bond, a, a normal one, and you can, and here's the yield. So right now, let's say it was two and a half percent, and then you can subtract out the real yield on the ten year or the yield on the 10 year Treasury inflation protection security, which is really approximation for the real yield. And the difference between those two would be the inflation expectation that's in in the market. And right now inflation expectations that are priced in to TIPS is about about I think just under two percent. And so there's, there's all these inflation expectations out there. But the thing to remember is a bond is made up of a real yield and an inflation expectation. So if investors believe inflation is picking up, their expectations will increase, which, so interest rates will, will rise. One reason rates haven't actually increased is because inflation has been below 2%, roughly in the U.S. and in many other countries. In fact, there's been a risk of deflation in in Europe, and so that there hasn't been an increase in inflation expectations, and that has kept interest rates down. That other component, the real rate, is influenced by a couple things. One, it's influenced by the central banks. The real rate is very much influenced by what the Fed has set for short-term interest rates, which we already talked about, that they target the Fed funds rate, for example. It's also influenced by the demand for money. How much are, do people want to borrow and their willingness to borrow? So There's a high demand for money that can influence the real rate of interest or the strength of the economy. And so it, real rates are really hard to, to exactly figure out. But all you need to know is that with a treasury bond, there is the inflation expectation and the real rate of interest. And as those expectations change, rates will rise and fall. For corporate bonds, both investment-grade and non-investment-grade, there's a third component, which is called the yield spread. We talked about that a few episodes ago on Are You a Complacent Investor? And we talked about the yield spread for non-investment-grade bonds. It's the additional yield that investors require to be compensated for credit risk or default risk, the fact that a corporate bond potentially could default. And so a corporate bond has those same three components. It has the real rate, it has the inflation expectation, and it has the credit risk. In that episode, I mentioned how investors are really fighting over each other to to grab that additional yield, and it has pushed down those credit spreads to close to all-time lows. Default risk has been low since the economy has been recovering, but also that additional yield spread credit spread has been also been very very low. And and so bottom line those are the three components of interest rates. Inflation expectations which are also very very low right now about in the US about 2.1%, so a little higher than I said a few minutes ago. Realized inflation has also been very very low. What's interesting though is the inflation expectation priced into, into bonds is about 2%. There's a survey each month that the conference board does and asks consumers in the U.S. what their expectation for inflation is. And that answer has been consistently 5 to 6% is what consumers believe inflation will be over the next year. And, and you can go back years and that's kind of been – the expectation. Consumers are terrible at anticipating inflation. They always think that that rates or inflation is higher than it actually is. Part of it is sort of like you stand in the grocery store. Whenever you stand in the line at the grocery store checkout counter, you always feel like you're always choosing the longest line. One reason is we tend to remember when we're in a long line, and when it goes quickly, we, we forget those things. We, we remember bad things more than we remember the good things. The same with inflation expectation by consumers. They tend to remember that gas prices went up. They don't remember as much when they fell or the food or particular food item is up. And as a result, they tend to over anticipate what they believe expectations are for inflation. But what's actually priced into the bond market is actually a pretty good proxy for what inflation expectations are. Right now, they're fairly low. And that has kept interest rates also low. So we got three components keeping rates very, very low right now. One, the Fed funds or central banks have kept interest rates at rock bottom. Inflation expectations are low. Default risk expectations are low. And they're combining to push low interest rates. What's interesting is actually in some countries, I talked about how you can deduct The nominal rate of interest, so whatever the typical yield on a bond is, say a 10-year treasury bond, you can deduct the inflation expectations, so as we said, 2.1%, and then you get whatever the real rate of interest rate is. In the U.S., 10-year treasury yielding 2.5%, inflation expectation 2.1%, that means the real rate of interest on a 10-year bond is 0.4%. In many countries in Europe, shorter-term interest rates, so two-year rates, are negative. So you have the yield, the nominal yield, you back out inflation expectation and your real rate of return is negative. And that's another thing that's keeping rates down. So when will rates increase? Interest rates will increase when central banks start to raise short-term interest rates so, and that's typically done. They don't raise them very, very quickly. They, it's very progressive steps over time. Rates will increase when that starts to occur or anticipation of that starting to occur. Rates will go up when inflation expectations increase and inflation expectations will increase when capacity becomes more constrained, when wages go up and wages in the U.S. have only gone up about on average in the past year, 2%, so wages have been kept down. So if capacity starts to get constrained, then you could see potentially more inflation. Rates will go up then. Rates will go up if there's a higher demand to borrow money. And so the overall real rate of interest also goes up. But that's what needs to happen, and it hasn't happened yet. We're still in a very slow-growth economy and since the Great Recession, and that has kept rates down. The other influence is what the rates are, as I mentioned, around the globe. If rates in Europe are already lower than the U.S. and Japan are even lower, that also puts downward pressure on interest rates. So it ha- it'll it happen in slow motion. It's not going to happen overnight. And there's time to adapt your portfolio to rising rates. We don't have to be all worried about it. You can hold fixed income inter- instruments, bond funds. You can earn your yield, your return of 4%, and as rates start to increase and some of these things start to impact, such as rising real rates, higher inflation, then you can adjust. One investment that I've held over the years that is very good to protect against rising interest rates are what are called bank loans or senior loans. There are bank loan funds, sometimes they're called floating rate funds, and these are bonds they're essentially it's loans that banks issued that they have securitized and packaged into and sold out into the market and there's funds that invest in these bank loans what's neat about them is the the rate of interest that the borrowers borrow from the bank from the banks is actually tied to very short term interest rates and it's variable and so the rate of interest the borrower pays goes up as interest rates go up, which means these bond funds, these floating rate funds, essentially have a duration of zero because the value of the bond fund does not change as interest rates change. And so they become an attractive vehicle to hold during a rising interest rate environment. But only if it's it's an environment where credit risk remains low the default rate on these bank loans in the US over the past year is the lowest it's ever been, about one point four percent. Now, if the again, if you look at these bank loan funds, what determines the rate of interest? Well, one, whatever the effectively the real rate of interest is, there is no inflation expectation. The other determinant is credit risk. What is that additional spread due to the credit risk? These bank loan funds, these floating rate funds. It's all non-investment grade bonds. And so there is credit risk there. And when the economy slows and if default rates increase, the value of these bonds can fall in value because the credit risk or the credit, the, the credit spread actually widens. So the interest rate actually goes up and the value of the bond can still fall. That's what happened in 2008. Many of these senior floating rate bond funds Fell 12 percent as the bite, as the bonds repriced. That's not where we are today, and so I've held them in the past, and and I, I'm trying to remember if I hold any right now. But as interest rates start to increase, if the economy is, if they're doing so because the economy is expanding, I'll, I will hold these senior floating rate bond funds. So bank loan funds are currently in the U.S. yielding about 4%. So there is a yield there. It's one thing you can do to protect against rising interest rates. Bottom line, though, when rates rise, it doesn't happen all at once. There's time to adapt your portfolio. Move to, if rates are progressively increasing, you can lower the duration of your portfolio. As shorter-term rates go up higher, you can get additional yield by holding shorter-term bonds. You don't have to do it today because there's time to adapt. Just a reminder that show notes for this episode can be found at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my insider's guide. And I'll email you those show notes. I answer readers' questions. Just a reminder, everything I share with you in today's podcast is for general education only. I've not considered your risk profile... If you have any questions, please email me at jd at jdavidstein.com. Again, I'd love your suggestions for ways you can live like you're rich without the money, the ways that you are maximizing your well-being with minimum of consumption. I'm going to revisit those topics in a few episodes. Next time, episode 23.